When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy to follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to invicta.enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's invicta.enterprises slash free checklist. All right, you ready for part two of the Musgrave Ritual? Kind of definitely left you on a cliffhanger last time, and it only gets better from there. So hope you guys enjoyed this, and don't forget about the Sherlock competition. We're going to be giving away four full free audiobooks, and that is a deal that you're not going to find anywhere else. So make sure to check that out. Click on the show notes, and all the instructions are there. Or you can go to anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com, and you can check out all the um, ways to enter right there on the uh, website there. So without further ado, I give Give you part two of the Musgrave Ritual. You can imagine, Watson, with what eagerness I listened to this extraordinary sequence of events, and endeavoured to piece them together, and to devise some common thread upon which they all might hang. The butler was gone. The maid was gone. The maid had loved the butler, but had afterwards had cause to hate him. She was of Welsh blood, fiery and passionate. She had been terribly excited immediately after his disappearance. She had flung into the lake a bag containing some curious contents. These were all factors which had to be taken into consideration, and yet none of them quite got to the heart of the matter. What was the starting point of this chain of events? There lay the end of this tangled line. "'I must see that paper, Musgrave,' said I, "'which this butler of yours thought it worth his while to consult, even at the risk of losing his place.' "'It is rather an absurd business, this ritual of ours.' he answered. But it has at least the saving grace of antiquity to excuse it. I have a copy of the questions and answers here, if you care to run your eye over them. He handed me the very paper which I have here, Watson, and this is the strange catechism to which each Musgrave had to submit when he came to man's estate. I will read you the questions and answers as they stand. Who was it? He who is gone. Who shall have it? He who will come. Where was the sun? Over the oak. Where was the shadow? Under the elm. How was it stepped? North by ten and by ten. East by five and by five. South by two and by two. West by one and by one. And so under. What shall we give for it? All that is ours. Why should we give it? For the sake of the trust. The original has no date, but is in the spelling of the middle of the seventeenth century, remarked Musgrave. I am afraid, however, that it can be of little help to you in solving this mystery. At least, said I, it gives us another mystery, and one which is even more interesting than the first. It may be that the solution of the one may prove to be the solution of the other. 
You will excuse me, Musgrave, if I say that your butler appears to me to have been a very clever man, and to have had a cleaner insight than ten generations of his masters. I hardly follow you, said Musgrave. The paper seems to me to be of no practical importance. But to me it seems immensely practical, and I fancy that Brunton took the same view. He had probably seen it before that night on which you caught him. It is very possible. We took no pains to hide it. He simply wished, I should imagine, to refresh his memory upon that last occasion. He had, as I understand, some sort of map or chart which he was comparing with the manuscript, and which he thrust into his pocket when you appeared. That is true, but what could he have to do with this old family custom of ours? And what does this rigmarole mean? I don't think that we should have much difficulty in determining that, said I. With your permission, we will take the first train down to Sussex, and go a little more deeply into the matter upon the spot. The same afternoon saw us both at Hurlstone. Possibly you should have seen pictures and read descriptions of the famous old building, so I will confine my account of it to saying that it is built in the shape of an L, the long arm being the more modern portion, and the shorter the ancient nucleus, from which the other had developed. Over the low, heavily lintel door, in the centre of this old part, is chiselled the date 1607, but experts are agreed that the beams and stonework are really much older than this. The enormously thick walls and tiny windows of this part had, in the last century, driven the family into building the new wing, and the old one was used as a storehouse and a cellar, when it was used at all. A splendid park with fine old timbers surrounds the house, and the lake, to which my client had referred, lay close to the avenue, about two hundred yards from the building. I was already firmly convinced, Watson, that there were not three separate mysteries here, but one only, and that if I could read the Musgrave ritual aright, I should hold in my hand the clue which would lead me to the truth, concerning both the butler Brunton and the maid Howells. To that, then, I turned all my energies. Why should this servant be so anxious to master this old formula? evidently because he saw something in it which had escaped all those generations of county squires, and from which he expected some personal advantage. What was it, then, and how had it affected his fate? It was perfectly obvious to me, on reading the ritual, that the measurements must refer to some spot to which the rest of the document alluded, and that if we could find that spot, we should be in a fair way towards finding what the secret was which the old Musgraves had thought it necessary to embalm in so curious a fashion. There were two guys given us to start with, an oak and an elm. As to the oak, there could be no question at all. Right in front of the house, upon the left-hand side of the drive, there stood a patriarch among oaks, one of the most magnificent trees that I have ever seen." "'That was there when your ritual was drawn up,' said I, as we drove past it. "'It was there at the Norman Conquest, in all probability,' he answered. "'It has a girth of twenty-three feet.' "'Have you any old elms?' I asked. "'There used to be a very old one over yonder, but it was struck by lightning ten years ago, and we cut down the stump.' "'You can see where it used to be?' "'Oh, yes.' "'There are no other elms?' No old ones, but plenty of beeches. I should like to see where it grew. We had driven up in a dog-cart, and my client led me away at once, without our entering the house, to the scar on the lawn where the elm had stood. It was nearly midway between the oak and the house. My investigation seemed to be progressing. 
I suppose it is impossible to find out how high the elm was? I asked. I can give it at once. It was sixty-four feet. How do you come to know it? I asked in surprise. When my old tutor used to give me an exercise in trigonometry, it always took the shape of measuring heights. When I was a lad, I worked out every tree and building in the estate. This was an unexpected piece of luck. My data were coming more quickly than I could have reasonably hoped. Tell me, I asked, did your butler ever ask you such a question? Reginald Musgrave looked at me in astonishment. Now that you call it to my mind, he answered. Brunton did ask me about the height of the tree some months ago, in connection with some little argument with the groom. This was excellent news, Watson, for it showed me that I was on the right road. I looked up at the sun, it was low in the heavens, and I calculated that in less than an hour it would lie just above the topmost branches of the old oak. One condition mentioned in the ritual would then be fulfilled, and the shadow of the elm must mean the farther end of the shadow, otherwise the trunk would have been chosen as the guide. I had then to find where the end of the shadow would fall when the sun just cleared the oak. That must have been difficult, Holmes, when the elm was no longer there. Well, at least I knew that if Brunton could do it, I could also. Besides, there was no real difficulty. I went with Musgrave to his study and whittled myself this peg, to which I tied this long string with a knot at each yard. Then I took two lengths of a fishing rod, which came to just six feet, and I went back with my client to where the elm had been. The sun was just grazing the top of the oak. I fastened the rod on end, marked out the direction of the shadow, and measured it. It was nine feet in length. Of course, the calculation now was a simple one. If a rod of six feet threw a shadow of nine, a tree of sixty-four feet would throw one of ninety-six, and the line of the one would of course be the line of the other. I measured out the distance, which brought me almost to the wall of the house, and I thrust a peg into the spot. You can imagine my exultation, Watson, when within two inches of my peg I saw a conical depression in the ground. I knew that it was the mark made by Brunton in his measurements, and that I was still upon his trail. From this starting point I proceeded to step, having first taken the cardinal points by my pocket compass. Ten steps with each foot took me along parallel with the wall of the house, and again I marked my spot with a peg. Then I carefully paced off five to the east and two to the south. It brought me to the very threshold of the old door. Two steps to the west meant now that I was to go two paces down the stone-flagged passage, and this was the place indicated by the ritual. Never have I felt such a cold chill of disappointment, Watson. For a moment it seemed to me that there must be some radical mistake in my calculations. The setting sun shone full upon the passage floor, and I could see that the old, foot-worn grey stones with which it was paved were firmly cemented together, and had certainly not been moved for many a long year. Brunton had not been at work here. I tapped upon the floor, but it sounded the same all over, and there was no sign of any crack or crevice. But fortunately, Musgrave, who had begun to appreciate the meaning of my proceedings, and who was now as excited as myself, took out his manuscript to check my calculation. "'And under!' he cried. "'You have omitted the and under!' I had thought that it meant that we were to dig, but now, of course, I saw at once that I was wrong. "'There is a cellar under this, then?' I cried. "'Yes, and as old as the house, down here, through this door.' We went down a winding stone stair, and my companion, striking a match, 
lit a small lantern which stood on a barrel in the corner. In an instant, it was obvious that we had come at last upon the true place, and that we had not been the only people to visit the spot recently. It had been used for the storage of wood, but the billets, which had evidently been littered over the floor, were now piled at the sides, so as to leave a clear space in the middle. In this space lay a large and heavy flagstone with a rusted iron ring in the center, to which a thick shepherd's check muffler was attached. "'By Jove!' cried my client. "'That's Brunton's muffler. I have seen it on him and could swear to it. What has the villain been doing here?' At my suggestion, a couple of the county police were summoned to be present, and I then endeavoured to raise the stone by pulling on the cravat. I could only move it slightly, and it was with the aid of one of the constables that I succeeded in at last carrying it to one side. A black hole yawned beneath into which we all peered, while Musgrave, kneeling at the side, pushed down the lantern. A small chamber, about seven feet deep and four feet square, lay open to us. At one side of this was a squat, brass-bound wooden box, the lid of which was hinged upwards, with this curious old-fashioned key projecting from the lock. It was furred outside by a thick layer of dust and damp and worms had eaten through the wood, so that a crop of livid fungi was growing on the inside of it, several discs of metal, old coins apparently, such as I hold here, were scattered over the bottom of the box, but it contained nothing else. At the moment, however, we had no thought for the old chest, for our eyes were riveted upon that which crouched beside it. It was the figure of a man, clad in a suit of black, who squatted down upon his hams with his forehead sunk upon the edge of the box, and his two arms thrown out on each side of it. The attitude had drawn all the stagnant blood to the face, and no man could have recognized that distorted, liver-colored countenance. But his height, his dress, and his hair were all sufficient to show my client, when we had drawn the body up, that it was indeed his missing butler. He had been dead some days, but there was no wound or bruise upon his person to show how he had met his dreadful end. When his body had been carried from the cellar, we found ourselves still confronted with a problem which was almost as formidable as that with which we had started. I confess that so far, Watson, I had been disappointed in my investigation. I had reckoned upon solving the matter when once I had found the place referred to in the ritual. But now I was there and was apparently as far as ever from knowing what it was which the family had concealed with such elaborate precautions. It is true that I had thrown light upon the fate of Brunton, but now I had to ascertain how that fate had come upon him, and what part had been played in the matter by the woman who had disappeared. I sat down upon a keg in the corner, and thought the whole matter carefully over. You know my methods in such cases, Watson. I put myself in the man's place, and, having first gauged his intelligence, I try to imagine how I should myself have proceeded under the same circumstances. In this case, the matter was simplified by Brunton's intelligence being quite first-rate, so that it was unnecessary to make any allowance for the personal equation, as the astronomers have dubbed it. He knew that something valuable was concealed. He had spotted the place. He found that the stone which covered it was just too heavy for a man to move unaided. What would he do next? He could not get help from outside, even if he had someone whom he could trust, without the unbarring of doors and considerable risk of detection. It was better, if he could, to have his helpmate inside the house. But who could he ask? This girl had been devoted to him. A man always finds it hard to realize that he may have finally lost a woman's love, 
however badly he may have treated her. He would try by a few attentions to make his peace with the girl, Howells, and then would engage her as his accomplice. Together they would come at night to the cellar, and their united force would suffice to raise the stone. So far I could follow their actions, as if I had actually seen them. But for two of them, and one a woman, it must have been heavy work the raising of that stone. A burly Sussex policeman and I had found it no light job. What could they do to assist them? Probably what I should have done myself. I rose and examined carefully the different billets of wood which were scattered round the floor. Almost at once I came upon what I had expected. One piece, about three feet in length, had a very marked indentation at one end, while several were flattened at the sides as if they had been compressed by some considerable weight. Evidently, as they had dragged the stone up, they had thrust the chunks of wood into the chink, until at last, when the opening was large enough to crawl through, they would hold it open by a billet placed lengthwise, which might very well become indented at the lower end, since the whole weight of the stone would press it down onto the ledge of this other slab. So far I was still on safe ground. And now, how was I to proceed to reconstruct this midnight drama? Clearly, only one could fit into the hole, and that one was Brunton. The girl must have waited above. Brunton then unlocked the box, handed up the contents presumably, since they were not to be found, and then... And then what happened? What mouldering fire of vengeance had suddenly sprung into flame in this passionate Celtic woman's soul when she saw the man who had wronged her? wronged her, perhaps, far more than we suspected, in her power. Was it a chance that the wood had slipped, and that the stone had shut Brunton into what had become his sepulchre? Had she only been guilty of silence as to his fate, or had some sudden blow of her hand dashed the support away, and sent the slab crashing down into its place? Be that as it might, I seemed to see that woman's figure still clutching at her treasure trove, and flying wildly up the winding stair, with her ears ringing, perhaps with the muffled screams from behind her, and with the drumming of frenzied hands against the slab of stone which was choking her faithless lover's life out. Here was the secret of her blanched face, her shaken nerves, her peals of hysterical laughter on the next morning. But what had been in the box? What had she done with that? Of course, it must have been the old metal and pebbles which my client had dragged from the mirror. She had thrown them in there at the first opportunity to remove the last trace of her crime. For twenty minutes I had sat motionless, thinking the matter out. Musgrave still stood with a very pale face, swinging his lantern and peering down into the hole. "'These are coins of Charles I, said he, holding out a few which had been in the box. "'You see, we were right in fixing our date for the ritual.' "'We may find something else of Charles I,' I cried, as the probable meaning of the first two questions of the ritual broke suddenly upon me. "'Let me see the contents of the bag which you fished from the mirror.' We ascended to his study, and he laid the debris before me. I could understand his regarding it as of small importance when I looked at it, for the metal was almost black, and the stones lusterless and dull.' I rubbed one of them on my sleeve, however, and it glowed afterwards like a spark in the dark hollow of my hand. The metalwork was in the form of a double ring, but it had been bent and twisted out of its original shape. "'You must bear in mind,' said I, "'that the royal party made head in England even after the death of the king, and that, when they at last fled, they probably left many of their most precious possessions buried behind them, with the intention of returning for them in more peaceful times.' 
My ancestor, Sir Ralph Musgrave, was a prominent cavalier and the right-hand man of Charles the Second in his wanderings, said my friend. Ah, huh, indeed, I answered. Well, now, I think that really should give us the last link that we wanted. I must congratulate you on coming into the possession, though in a rather tragic manner, of a relic which is of great intrinsic value, but of even greater importance as a historical curiosity. What is it, then? He gasped in astonishment. It is nothing less than the ancient crown of the kings of England. The crown? Precisely. Consider what the ritual says. How does it run? Whose was it? His who is gone. That was after the execution of Charles. Then who shall have it? He who will come. That was Charles the Second, whose advent was already foreseen. There can, I think, be no doubt that this battered and shapeless diadem once encircled the brows of the royal stewards. And how came it in the pond? Ah, that is a question that will take some time to answer. And with that I sketched out to him the whole long chain of surmise and of proof which I constructed. The twilight had closed in and the moon was shining brightly in the sky before my narrative was finished. And how was it then that Charles did not get his crown when he returned? asked Musgrave, pushing back the relic into its linen bag. Ah, there you lay your finger upon the one point which we shall probably never be able to clear up. It is likely that the Musgrave who held the secret died in the interval, and by some oversight left this guide to his descendant without explaining the meaning of it. From that day to this it had been handed down from father to son, until at last it came within reach of a man who tore its secret out of it, and lost his life in the venture. And that's the story of the Musgrave ritual, Watson. They have the crown down at Hurlstone, though they had some legal bother and a considerable sum to pay before they were allowed to retain it. I am sure that if you mentioned my name, they would be happy to show it to you. Of the woman, nothing was ever heard, and the probability is that she got away out of England and carried herself and the memory of her crime to some land beyond the seas. All right, thank you guys so much for listening today. As always, uh, just want to remind you that the best way to help the show grow is just to tell other people about it. And while you're telling other people about it, you might as well enter the Sherlock competition because that is what it's all about. It's just about spreading the word, but it's also about getting you a chance to win. There's actually going to be five chances to win uh, four full free audiobooks, and it's all going to be Sherlock awesomeness. So definitely check that out. Go uh, click on the show notes or go to anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com. And yeah, that is. It's super simple. Try to make it super easy so that you can just get in there and have a nice shot at getting those audiobooks. So good luck, and we'll talk to you next time. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.